Welcome to the Filling Pal podcast. I'm Greg Ashman, and with me for this episode is John Sweller, Emeritus Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of New South Wales. Welcome, John. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I suppose for full disclosure, we should let anyone listening know that uh, you're one of my PhD supervisors, so we, we, do have, we, we do know each other already. Yes, we've known each other for some years. <laughs> yeah, we have actually, haven't we? And we've published together um, based yeah. on my uh, PhD research. So, yeah, anyways. Yeah. Yeah, so, and uh, 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 for anyone who wishes to know, Greg's PhD is going wonderfully. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John, thanks. Um, now, most listeners, if they know uh, your work, they will know you're associated with the field of cognitive load theory. I mean, that's, that, that should be the one thing people would know. Um, and I wanted to start by asking you about some of the history of cognitive load theory. How did it get started? And was it something to do with you taking a sabbatical in America? No, I don't think so. No, <laughs> have I got that bit wrong? Yeah, yeah. I uh, no, it was. Uh, uh, look at uh, uh, a lot of people ask me this question, and it's yeah. always fairly difficult to answer because cognitive load theory uh, it, it was developed rather than sort of discovered. It was uh, it it. it it, it was developed over decades and it's still being developed. Uh, the closest I can really find to something that started the theory was a, um, uh, a series of experiments that I carried out. I can't even remember the word in the 1970s or 1980s, though, a long time ago. I was concerned with... Um, uh, looking at people solving problems. And the problems I had were um, problems of the sort where people were given a, uh, a start number and they were told, here's the goal number that you have to get to. And to get to it, there are only two moves, two types of moves you can make. You can multiply by three whenever you want to. You can subtract by I think the number was 27, whenever you want to. And you have to go from the start number to the goal number. Yeah. And the problems were organised in such a way so that every single problem could only be solved by alternating, multiply by three, subtract 27 for a certain number of times. People found these problems fairly easy. Just about all of them solved all of the problems. And all of them solved them by alternating because that was the only way you could solve them. And yet after they solved the problems, when I tested to see whether they discovered the alternation rule, most of them hadn't. Few had, but most hadn't. And it, I mean, this was a puzzle problem in, in itself. It's not an educationally significant thing. But I was puzzled. How could they have alternated their moves, which is what they had to do, and not even be aware of it? Yeah, it is a bit strange. It, it was strange. And, it, and, okay, I thought, well, if that's the case for this puzzle problem, what if it applies to proper educational problems? 
that was the real start of cognitive load theory because I, I, yeah, it, it was, it's been well known for many, many decades, well before I ran these experiments that working memory is extremely limited. And the obvious conclusion was, well, okay, if you're trying to solve a problem, you're trying to get to the goal, you can get to the goal, but because working memory is so limited, by the time you get to the goal, you don't really know what you've done. And many of us would have come across that ourselves. Uh, we would have solved a problem and say, oh, wow, I've got to the solution. How did I do that? Yeah. It's, 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 not, it's not something totally unknown. You know, most people know about it. And uh, uh, that was probably, as far as I can find a, a start to cognitive load theory that was probably the beginning so the idea we'd explain that we'd say now we'd say well there was enough sort of working memory to solve the problem but there wasn't yeah. any left over to sort of notice the pattern and it just is it proves in a slightly artificial sense but it proves that you could solve a problem and not learn the pattern that was involved in that. And so if we extrapolated that, that that could be, you, potentially you could have students solving math problems, but not figuring out the uh, generalizing from them and, and learning rules and procedures and things like that. Exactly. And the, the whole point in a classroom of giving somebody a problem to solve, unless it's a test, yeah. the whole, whole purpose is, okay, they're going to learn something. And it, it was obvious, extremely obvious in the case of those particular problems. Look, if I wanted to teach them how to alternate, I don't have to give them a problem. So I said, look, to solve this problem, you alternate all the way through. And uh, they could solve any uh, problem, no matter how many, no matter how many moves it was. Yeah. And, you know, some, some of these people, I gave them 16 problems to solve. And they solved all of them and they didn't know they solved them by alternation. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, uh, but you know, if I'd told them solve all of these by alternation, and there's no reason why you shouldn't generalize that to problems solved in education or contexts like mathematics or science or indeed writing essays or whatever. Uh, you may be able to solve the problem, doesn't mean you've learned. And the whole point of giving problems to people in an educational context is they're going to learn something. There may be better ways of learning. And this was quite at odds, as I understand it, with the, um, the, the established sort of thinking at the time in the late 70s, early 80s around problem solving. I mean, I remember I was one of the kids when I was at primary school where we were given the little, um, the little robots uh, that you had to control with the computer using the logo computing language, Seymour Papert's idea that we, you'd learn programming and by doing that. So that was yeah. very much the vogue at the time. So I'm assuming that people didn't necessarily pick up on this idea uh, with great enthusiasm. No, uh, uh, it, it took decades for people to uh, start to accept this. And to some extent, there's still a lot of people out there who don't accept it. So it's, uh, it's, not a, it's not an easy thing to sell. Uh, the, 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 the idea of problem-based learning, inquiry-based learning, they're very, very strong. 
there is really no theoretical justification for anything other than explicit instruction. There's a lot of theoretical justification for explicit instruction. But intuitively, a lot of us feel, oh, look, we want to be, kids to be good at solving problems. How do, we, how do we get them to be good at solving problems? Oh, let, let, let's give them problems to solve. Yeah. Turns out that's counterintuitive for uh, uh, many, many people. It's, it's, it is fairly obvious, isn't it, in a way that that's what you would do because we would, you'd think you'd get better at it, like you would develop problem-solving skills by solving lots of problems. Exactly. And, and indeed, you do get better at it, but it's long and slow and very inefficient, indeed ineffective. So um, can you give us then, like, uh, sort of, that's the starting point of cognitive load theory. So um, could you give, like, a fairly, I don't know, I mean, you've written uh, books on this, so uh, we, <laughs> it, it's a difficult question I'm asking you, but can you give us a fairly brief outline of cognitive load theory and, and some of its sort of main implications? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about some aspects of it, uh, ultimately, one needs to read about it to get all the details, but the, the main point about cognitive load theory is that it flows directly from some aspects of human cognitive architecture that are in no way in dispute. Uh, one of those aspects is working memory and its limitations. And working memory is is the structure we use when we're dealing, when we're initially processing information. And it is well known and has been well known since the 1950s or before that working memory is extremely limited in capacity, can hold very little information, extremely limited in duration, can material uh, stays in working memory for no more than about 20 seconds unless you keep rehearsing it. So that's the first thing. Yeah. Once information is processed, it can go into long-term memory and long-term memory, uh, it, it's permanent memory. And the importance of long-term memory is it has no limitations. There are no limitations of capacity that we know of, no limitations of duration that we know of. Once something is in long-term memory, once it's been processed and organized and stored in long-term memory, it can, go, it can go back into working memory and the limitations of working memory disappear at that point. Yeah. Okay. The limitations of working memory that I mentioned before only occur for novel information. And of course, in an education context, that's absolutely critical because the students are getting novel information all the time. That's yeah. the whole purpose of education. But once information is stored in long-term memory, it can be brought back into working memory and the there are no limitations of working memory when it's dealing with information from long-term memory. That provides us with the justification for education. We are transformed once we have a lot of information in long-term memory. 
we can do things we couldn't dream of doing beforehand. We, it means that the purpose of education is to allow people to store lots and lots of information in long-term memory because it's that that transforms them. It's that that allows them to function in a way that we know education allows you to function. Yeah. So that, that's, the, that's the basic structure. It's, it's much more than that, and we may be able to touch on some of it uh, later on. What, what does that mean for instructional procedures? Well, we, we've generated a huge range of instructional effects. Uh, I'm not going to talk about all of them, but uh, uh, going back to what we were saying right at the beginning, one of the effects is the worked example effect. Yep. Instead of having somebody solve a problem, which places a heavy load on working memory, give them a worked example. Demonstrate, give them the problem, demonstrate its solution, the details of the solution, and tell them, okay, study this solution. Rather than solve the problem, study this solution. And there have been uh, dozens, possibly hundreds, I don't know, uh, there have been many, many experiments demonstrating the worked example effect for complicated information. If you show somebody a worked example, compare that to an equivalent group of people who uh, solved the equivalent problem, then give everybody a problem-solving test. Give them problems to solve. The result, people who've been shown worked examples are better at solving problems than people who have actually at, uh, solved the problems. And the, the, the question I get a lot, and it feels intuitive, but um, some people say, yeah, well, okay, so it might be less efficient to learn by solving problems. Uh, it might be more efficient to learn from worked examples, but don't you somehow learn it better if you figure it out for yourself? Yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But yeah. the, the answer is no. The answer is no. Um, uh, we, we simply cannot find any evidence that figuring out a complex problem by yourself, it gives you a great feeling, you know, you've done <laughs> all that work and, oh, I finally got a solution. Yeah. But when you test people afterwards, at best, you'll get no difference. At worst, you'll get the person who was shown how to solve it. They do much better because more has gone into long-term memory. In other words, if, if, if somebody is better at doing something, it's because there's more information in long-term memory. You get more information in long-term memory by studying somebody's solution than you do by working it out yourself. And you probably get a possibly a more robust understanding because if you work something out for yourself, I mean, I, 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 gave, the I gave the example in a, a talk a, a while back of uh, figuring out how to replace the flush in my toilet. So I, I had to figure out how to flat because I had got this terrible diagram that came with it from Bunnings. And I had to, so I basically had to figure it out myself. I spent the next 
week wondering whether the toilet was going to flood. I didn't feel like I'd understand understood it particularly well, even though I managed to figure it out. And I'd probably have benefited from an expert explaining to me exactly why this had to go there and that had to do that. Precisely. And humans have evolved and we're one of the very few species on earth who have evolved to obtain information from each other. We're really, really good at it. Setting up an education system where we don't obtain information from an expert, a teacher in other words, based on what we know about human cognitive architecture is just silly. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't make any sense. One one thing on the human cognitive architecture. So I get... um, Obviously, I write about cognitive load theory a lot, so I get a lot of the the queries and questions. So that's where some of this is probably going to go. But one of the things people say to me is, oh, yeah, but working memory, long-term memory, that's too simple. Uh, What about sensory buffers? What about the fact that you could have some people say that there's like a working long-term or long-term working memory or something? And and I, I say to them, well, okay, like... The point is not that this is a full and accurate description of everything. The point is that it's the working memory, long-term memory model is a model. It's not supposed to fully and accurately represent every aspect of the human mind, but it's a model that is sufficient for making predictions about doing, and then you can do the experiments and you can see whether the predictions um, hold or not. Um, And I just wondered if you had any any thoughts on that. Yeah, no. uh... That's quite so. Uh, uh, There's never been any suggestion that working memory and long-term memory comprise the sum total of the human cognitive system. We've extracted those particular structures and the intricate relations between them. The relations between them are are really clever. We've extracted those because they're relevant to instruction. Now, uh, is sensory memory part of the human cognitive system? Of course it is. Is it relevant to instruction? Well, I can't find any relevance. If somebody demonstrates that it's relevant, terrific. I've no problem with that at all. Long-term working memory is simply another way of describing how information that goes from long-term memory into working memory is different from information that goes in the other direction. Yeah. Uh, So, in in effect, cognitive load theory does take into account long-term working memory. We tend not to use the term so much. That's uh, an Ericsson term, and it's, it's perfectly acceptable. Uh, and it's more or less saying the same as what we're saying, but uh, it's, uh, it, 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 it's, it's using a uh, couple of words connected with a dash rather than <laughs> treating long-term memory and, and working memory as two separate structures. Uh, I remember writing about this in in draft bit of my thesis and sort of what, writing about the different ways you can conceptualise how... Long, items in long-term memory brought into working memory and use. And I wrote about, I think, three different ways. And I think you or Slava struck one of the three out and said, don't talk about that one. But then after I'd finished writing about the two, I had to say, but of course, it doesn't actually make any difference. 
<laughs> whichever way you think of this. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that, 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 it. It's functionally identical. That's, yeah. that's 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 absolutely correct. Yeah. Um. Now, can we clear one thing up? I think there's also this was this one actually came up in um in the TES a couple of years ago, a British education newspaper. That uh, some people seem to think that all the research that supports cognitive load theory has been done with undergraduate uh, students in universities and therefore is not relevant to uh, school classrooms yes i i heard of that in fact you you, you probably were the person who uh, alerted me to it it's it's really strange because there are as i say literally hundreds and hundreds of experiments that have been carried out on cognitive load theory I'm not sure that any of them have used university students. I, I guess some way, but I, I can't. I can't think of any yeah. offhand. Uh, the vast bulk of them have used um, school kids. Vast bulk. I, I, again, this is a guess. I'd say eighty or ninety percent. Yeah. Most of the rest have been people like industrial apprentices who've yep. been learning something like electrical engineering. Uh, some people have done, yeah, yeah, some people have done uh, uh, experiments on cognitive load theory using medical students and yep. obviously they're, they're undergraduates. It would be a few percent. I, I, I have no idea where this came from. No idea. <laughs> I, I wonder whether it's a lot of the my hypothesis is that a lot of the testing effect. Sorry, we call it what do we call it now? Retrieval practice. A lot of the retrieval practice um, uh, research was done with um, undergraduates, I think. I, I, and again, I maybe I've maybe that's a misconception as well. But I wonder whether people are conflating the two. Possibly, although uh, the, the the people who seem to think. Uh, there were one or two names that were given to me. Uh, um, I uh, who, who thought most of it was done with the um, with undergraduates. They may have known about the testing effect. I'm I'm, I'm not sure. It's, no. Uh, um, and now one of the um, I remember early on uh, uh, coming up to Sydney and talking to you about cognitive load theory and some my ideas and stuff and talking about working memory being a bottleneck. Now, we've sort of addressed this already, but you do see it a lot. You do see people talk about working memory being a bottleneck. Um, and in some ways, it, it may be a good analogy, but you corrected me. You said, wait a bit, that's not, that's not quite right. Um, so can you explain why that's not really the right way of thinking about working memory? Look, let me begin by saying, yes, it is a bottleneck when one is dealing with novel information. Yeah. When you're dealing with novel information, uh, that that that's an excellent analogy. That's exactly it. You can only get a bit of information from sensory memory into working memory and then onto long-term memory. That bottleneck is not apparent. It disappears when you go in the opposite direction. And keep in mind, the purpose of education gets stuff into long-term memory and then you can use it. Yeah. And at that point, the bottleneck disappears, which again is a major reason why education is so incredibly important, why it's transformational. Because we can do things easily, 
in some ways almost unconsciously, once we've got proper stored information in long-term memory, it changes us. And education changes us and it changes us because working memory no longer has those constraints. Yeah. Um, one of the, which some people um, uh, who are skeptical about cognitive load theory will point to uh, Geary's uh, theory of evolutionary educational psychology, uh, which is seen as foundational to cognitive load theory. Um, so can we just unpack that a bit before we talk about um, what what potential criticisms might be? What What is uh, Geary's theory and how does it relate to cognitive load theory? Like what are the implications for the theory? Okay. Uh, uh, the main aspects of Geary's theory that are relevant to cognitive load theory and instruction, uh, the main aspect is his distinction between what he calls biologically primary knowledge and biologically primary knowledge is knowledge we have evolved to acquire. In other words, uh, we don't have to be taught biologically primary knowledge. We, we will automatically pick it up uh, in normal life. Biologically secondary knowledge is knowledge we can acquire and that might be important to us for cultural reasons, but we won't acquire it unconsciously, automatically, easily. We have to work on it. And we invented schools to deal with biologically secondary knowledge. And because of that distinction, we can see that school, that cognitive load theory basically applies to biologically secondary knowledge, it doesn't apply to biologically primary knowledge. In other words, that, 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 that working memory, long-term memory, cognitive architecture that I talked about earlier that, uh, and the relations between the two, that applies to biologically secondary information. It doesn't apply to biologically primary information. And for that reason, uh, we need that distinction. A biologically primary information can just go straight into long-term memory without the working memory constraints. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. As far as, far as we know, uh, it's it's it, it's it's information we we just acquire automatically. Uh, we we don't we don't have to uh, uh, consciously think about it or learn it or have it presented to us. Uh, just living in a normal society, uh, we'll we'll pick we'll pick it up and uh, and um, the sorts of things we're talking about are learning your mother tongue, maybe navigating your local area, that sort of thing. Uh, knowing how to navigate, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, whether your local area is a uh, uh, is a suburban area or a city or a, or a forest. Uh, you don't you 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 have to learn that local area, but yep. uh, 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 you'll automatically navigate it. Uh, solving problems. You know, in 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 general, uh, nobody tells you how to go about 
solving a problem. I mean, you know, if you've got a problem to solve, you, you, you try to solve it. Nobody said, okay, when you solve a problem, this is how you go about doing it. I mean, some people seem to think that ought to be in the education system, but uh, for people who think that, uh, you know, my, my usual retort is, is uh, well, what problem solving strategy have you been taught? Have you learned that yeah. needs to be taught to uh, students? And uh, uh, the answer is normally a blank stare. And of course, if you can't describe the problem solving strategies that you use, how are you going to teach them? Mm. What about this? What about this challenge? Say, so presumably, um, a a strategy could be evolutionarily adaptive. To, I'm struggled to spit that out then, but socially maladaptive. So, for instance, if we get people together in groups, one of the phenomena you might see is social loafing. So, someone sitting back and letting other people in the group do all the work. That's evolutionarily adaptive because you have to do less work. But we don't want people in the workforce, say, to do that. So is there something in the idea that we should maybe sort of teach people collaborative working skills then to try and get around that, perhaps? That's a good question. Um, uh, my guess is no, uh, what you do need is some structures which ensure that people don't loaf. Yeah. And that, that's, that's easily done. Uh, you know, you, you put in structures to make sure people don't loaf. But you don't have to teach people how to collaborate. I yeah. mean, again, if, um, if somebody comes to me and says, oh, look, you know, we, 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 we need these enormous modules in education which teach people how to collaborate. Now, the obvious answer is, okay, how do you collaborate? Because, you know, we all collaborate. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a part of human nature, uh, hence biologically primary. Uh, and because we all collaborate, it's a, it, it's, it's impossible to find a strategy that, that you can teach people and say, right, this is how you collaborate. At least not one that isn't self-evident. Yeah. Yeah, like taking in turns and things like that, I suppose. I suppose you do that with little kids in prep maybe, but then what you're doing, I suppose, is you're, you're socialising them perhaps into yeah. a particular culture. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, you know, when when you when when you're in a classroom, this is this is how you've got to behave. It's, uh... hmm. So, um, okay. So here's a here's another one to throw in there. So we we've got this categorization categorization um, of biologically primary and biologically secondary. And what people say to me is that there's lots of things that you can't easily say is one thing or the other. Um, so, for instance, you know, uh, running presumably is biologically primary because we all learn to run. But elite runners uh, will have a coach that will teach them aspects of running. So isn't this and doesn't this point to the idea that running sits across the two categories? No, because they're two different things. 
be uh, we're not taught how to run as as you indicate so you know, it's biologically primary if we want to learn how to win a race that's something else you need a coach for that you need a coach who says look when you're running a race this is this is the best way of of winning it i i don't know the details <laughs> no. i don't run races very often <laughs> There's a knowledge base there, and yeah. it's a knowledge base which uh, needs to be taught. And uh, until, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, we didn't know about it. It wasn't yeah. taught. I mean, the uh, uh, post-Second World War runners, uh, I don't know whether they had a coach, and uh, my guess is they didn't. There was nothing, nothing to, nothing to coach. Since then, we've learned a lot more, and there's something to coach now. Yeah. So we've uh, learned additional information about, I know, conserving. I don't, again, I'm not a runner either, so this isn't probably the best example for us to discuss. <laughs> but conserving energy or something like that, and we can now teach that. But that's not something we would sort of figure out through the biologically primary process of learning to run. Yeah, it's 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 a different thing. Uh, look, I should perhaps say a little bit more about the importance of biologically primary and biologically secondary issues. Um, what, what, one of the one of the issues that that we face is a lot of people talk about um, learning naturally. Yeah learning uh, uh look at look at look at how easy it is to learn outside of the classroom look at the difficulty students have learning in the classroom yeah and until this distinction came along i had no answer to that it's it was a good argument yeah and it, you know, it was a logical argument it made sense we learn much more easily outside the classroom. Therefore, we ought to bring those natural procedures that are used outside of the classroom into the classroom. Yeah. And things like problem-based learning and inquiry-based learning, they came entirely, as far as I can work out, from that. There's yeah. no theory behind them. There's no, you know, people don't say, oh, look at our cognitive architecture and therefore you ought to engage in inquiry learning or problem-based learning. Yeah. It came entirely from that extremely visible difference. Yeah, it's like whole language. People say people, kids pick up their mother tongue just by being immersed in an environment where people are talking. So therefore we surround them with books and they'll learn to read. Exactly. That was exactly it. And same with mathematics, you know, give them a little bit, but mainly they should learn it themselves and they'll learn it. I mean, learning to uh, listen and speak is probably the most complex thing that humans do. And uh, it's so complex and we, we learn it so well. Let, let's transfer it into the classroom and have people learn naturally. Yeah. And I had no answer to that. And then... David Geary's work came along and all of a sudden that was the answer. Now you'll get a lot of people who will object to the distinction yeah. because of course they have to object to the distinction. 
the rationale for inquiry learning and problem-based learning disappears once you have that distinction between biologically primary and biologically secondary. The reason we learn better outside of a classroom because we're learning different things. Yeah. Things that we've evolved to learn because that they've contributed to our survival over hundreds of thousands, millions of years, whereas things like writing have only been around for a few thousand years. And um, so we, we couldn't have evolved to uh, be able to do those things. We, we, we haven't evolved to do those things. And uh, uh, you can see the difference until very recently, you know, 100, 150 years ago, the vast majority of people couldn't read and write. Yeah. Despite the fact that writing had been around, as you said, for thousands of years, didn't mean that people could read and write. A very small number of people could read and write. Most of them didn't. We had to set up modern education systems. Uh, you don't have to set up modern education systems to have people listening and speaking. Yeah. So there, there, there's, that, there's that difference. And the cognitive architecture is different as well. And the procedures we need to teach reading and writing and arithmetic and mathematics and history and everything else, they have to be different as well. And as I say, I can, I can understand why people uh, object to that distinction because it utterly eliminates and which something which until very recently was the full rationale and the only rationale that I can make out for the difference between uh, for, for the uh, emphasis that people put on um, uh, inquiry based and problem based learning and teaching uh, critical thinking and all, all, all that. No, they call them 21st century skills as yeah. though. People didn't need to do any of this uh, before the 21st century. <laughs> um, one of the things people say is, uh, look, evolutionary psychology more generally, it's it's hard to test, it's hard to do experiments. We, we sort of extrapolate back from now towards the past, but evolution often takes slightly different um, convoluted pathways. Like, you, you know, if you extrapolate back from the past, you think that, feathers evolved for flight, but we know now that the first feathers were on dinosaurs that didn't fly and all this. So are we, are we just telling a just-so story that just happens to fit now and we're extrapolating back to the past and coming up with this primary and secondary thing? Or, or is there something testable there? Are we going to be able to test Geary's theory? Look, in a way, you can test it by picking out uh, things that we know uh, we've evolved to acquire. I mean, you know, the walking is the obvious example. You know, let, let's, let's see if we can teach a kid to learn to walk much faster. You know, they normally learn to walk at, I don't know, about one year of age or something yeah. like that, or a bit less. Well, let, let's, let's see if we can teach them to walk at a much younger age so they'll be better walkers and better runners. Yeah. Well, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it just doesn't work. Um, and and the, the, the ultimate test is 
let's see if people can learn to read and write without being taught. Yeah. Well, we've done that test. Yeah. We did that test for several thousand years. <laughs> and we know the answer. They just won't It's uh, in, in most cases. Yeah. So let's briefly circle just... It sounds very. It, I'm, I'm just enjoying putting these uh, the, the criticisms that I often get uh, to you and chewing them over. So let's just deal with a few more before we move move on. Yeah, sure, um, sure. Okay. So uh, load is not directly remeasurable and uh, relies entirely on self reports. Yes, uh, it is true. We cannot very very precisely have independent measures of cognitive load and there's a good reason for that and that reason goes right back to the cognitive architecture we described before if if we want to measure how much information somebody is processing or what sort of a load it's imposing what sort of load that information is imposing we can we can uh, use bits and bytes and all sorts of complicated procedures which will tell us something about that information. But those calculations will tell us absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing about what's in somebody's long-term memory. Yeah. And that is critical because it changes everything. Yeah. Uh, something which I may find incredibly difficult, imposing an immense cognitive load, you may be able to deal with immediately and almost without thought. Yeah. Because it's in long-term memory. So in order to measure the cognitive load, the two things you have to measure simultaneously, you have to measure the characteristics of the information yeah and you have to measure what's in the receiver's long-term memory the the, the learner's long-term memory you have to measure those simultaneously and the second one especially is difficult to do we can yeah. give tests and we do give tests and some of those tests are incredibly important and in effect we're measuring what's in long-term memory through those tests. But it's difficult to get a precise measure. We can get a rough measure. Yeah. That's easy to do. Uh, and we can look at the extremes. You know, something's very low in cognitive load and something's very high in cognitive load. That's obvious. Do we have a precise measure? No, we don't. So when we have two very close measures of cognitive load no we don't have a measure i think some people would like to be able to uh put um subjects in a brain scanner and say oh well look this blood flow means that the working memory is um at this level but we don't even really know where it is do we like i mean it's it's a model but we couldn't say this is the bit of the brain where it, this thing is being processed yeah 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 uh uh, uh. 
working memory, as far as we know, is is is, is not really a structure. Yeah. It's it, it's a procedure. Yeah. Uh, a procedure that's going on in the brain. And <clears throat> excuse me. It 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 may well be that in due course, people work out the details of that procedure, but. Uh, Despite all the emphasis on uh, neuropsychology these days, we've got a long way to go. We've got yeah. a long way to go. Okay, so some of the others. Um, the Germain Load controversy. That I think we're a bit past that, but I, some people still bring it up. So that's the idea that Germain Load made the theory falsifiable. Uh, uh, unfalsifiable. Uh, uh, Sorry. Unfalsifiable. Yeah. Uh, yeah, unfalsifiable. Um, they may well be right, um, but it doesn't matter. Um, I've pretty much, I've defined germane load differently and to some extent really don't use it. And the reason for not using it is that there's a lot of those, the, the ultimate purpose of cognitive load theory is yeah. to generate cognitive load effects. Yeah. Instructional procedures, to generate instructional procedures. And uh, the other two types of load are extraneous cognitive load and intrinsic cognitive load. We've got several effects which are due to intrinsic cognitive load. So we need intrinsic cognitive load. Most of the effects are extraneous cognitive load. So we obviously need that. There's not a single effect based on germane cognitive load. Yeah. Um, it, it was a good idea when it first came up, but it, it's proving unnecessary. It doesn't seem to be working. And as, as, as you said, some people complain, well, look, it, it makes the theory unfalsifiable and yeah. fair so enough. It's not necessary. Um, uh, and then the last one, and I haven't got through anywhere near the questions I wanted to, but we'll, we'll press on. Uh, the last one of these. So element interactivity, which I got one of the reviews, I wrote a book on explicit teaching and direct instruction. And one of the reviews, I got a nice review on Amazon, but um, one of the guys complained that I talked too much about element interactivity. So I'll, <laughs> I will try and I'll try not to go on too much about it. But this is the idea that it, it's essentially the same argument you're making about load. I mean, the, the two things are, are intertwined. But yeah, um, they're, the they're the same thing. Um, so and Carpicky a few years ago, um, you, you wrote a paper uh, saying that look. The, the retrieval practice, the testing effect depends on the level of element interactivity. And Jeffrey Carpicky, the retrieval practice guy said, oh, this is a nonsense idea. You can't, you can't count the number of elements, blah, blah, blah. So what, what's, your, what's your response? It's unavoidable if we accept that working memory, long-term memory cognitive structure. It's, it is true we can estimate element interactivity. Yeah. That's all we can do because we can only estimate what's up in long-term memory. Yeah. In other words, we, we, we can't know exactly what's in long-term memory. There are measures, it's a measure of complexity. Yeah. And there are other measures of complexity which are really, really accurate. But they rely entirely on looking at the information and measuring the characteristics of the information. And for the human cognitive system, that is useless. That yeah. is useless. And I think uh, a lot of people 
from my in my experience, a lot of people think that element interactivity really is just a measure of the complexity of the instructional materials. And I think there's a misconception that they don't realize that each like if you've got a schema, I know you don't tend to use the word schema so much anymore, but you've got a schema of that you can activate in working memory. So 3x equals 18. And me as a math teacher, I'll say, okay, x is x is six. Um, but someone that I've just activated the whole thing and I've done it like that. And the number of elements I've got to process in my working memory is, well, one, I suppose, because it's just that one thing. But um, but for someone who is learning that um, and maybe isn't even certain about equivalence, what the equals means, there's a lot more to process. There are many, many elements. And that, that's really the point I made before about, you know, a, a novice and an expert. Uh, for a novice material may be really high in elementary interactivity. Uh, can we measure it precisely? No. For an expert, it may be very low in elementary interactivity. Uh, we probably can't measure that terribly accurately either. But at the extremes we know, you know, it's, it's really obvious that if something is very high in element interactivity and you get different different uh, experimental results. Uh, in other words, instruction is different when element interactivity is high as opposed to when it's low. And element, the whole, the whole reason for using the term element interactivity rather than using the term complexity was because we needed to bring in knowledge in long-term memory. It is unavoidable. It's, it's part, of the, part of human cognitive architecture and uh, sure, element interactivity is a theoretical construct. It's not one that we can precisely measure. It's not the first scientific construct that we can't precisely measure. Yeah. We sometimes need them. Yeah. Uh, and and it, 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 for anyone who knows human cognitive architecture, it's obvious we have to have something. We either have element interactivity or something very much like it. And the, and the final point to make, I suppose, the other element, the other bit of confusion, it's element interactivity. So I think with Chen and, um, and Slava and yourself in a paper, you made the point about the periodic table that um, you, the, it would be really hard to sit down and learn all the symbols for all the elements of the periodic table. That's it's a challenging task, but that doesn't mean the element interact, interactivity is high because you could learn each discrete symbol on its own within the constraints of working memory um, because they don't interact with each other. And so that interactivity, like when my 3x equals 18 example, the 3, the x, the equals and the 18, they all have a relationship to each other. Yeah, exactly. And uh, uh, that's right. Um, uh, for, for many, many years now, I keep emphasizing, having difficulty getting across nevertheless, but I keep emphasizing there's a difference between difficulty and element interactivity. It is true if element interactivity goes up, difficulty goes up, but difficulty can go up without element interactivity changing at all. Yeah. Uh, the, the example I, yeah, the, the periodic table example is an obvious one, but uh, possibly uh, learning the, um, let's say nouns of a second language as an ad adult, there are thousands of them. Yeah. And that's an immensely difficult task. 
is alimentidraxivity high? No, no, you can learn the translation of the word dog and ignore that when you're learning the translation of the word cat. It's, yeah. uh, uh, they don't interact. And another example where we, we might think something's relatively simple, but it's actually got quite high in elements interactivity is how we teach kids to write paragraphs. So um, you might have like, well, we've got a topic sentence that introduces it. And then we've got, depending on, what, on exactly what you're trying to do, we, we then support it with some evidence and we support it with some more evidence. And, but actually all those things then relate to each other. So you've got to keep them all in mind at the same time in order to be able to complete that task. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, writing anything. Uh, um, uh, one of the uh, uh, difficulties I have reading work from some students is all the information's there, but it's not connected up. It's yeah. like a whole series of unrelated. It's, it's like a list. An, an essay or a paragraph or an essay is not a list. Yeah. <laughs> and, and connecting it up can be... It's a learned skill and it can be fairly difficult. <laughs> um, okay, so we're rapidly running out of time and I wanted to ask you lots about um, general purpose skills, but we won't. Uh, we'll just, um, maybe maybe you can come on the podcast again if you if you feel so uh, inclined. Um, <laughs> um, we've both been commenting on uh, the draft Australian curriculum and the rather disturbing um, emphasis in the maths curriculum on problem solving and the science curriculum on learning through inquiry. Um, now, uh, one of the things, one of the arguments that's been put to me on the maths one is uh, I've, I've pointed to the research, your research and various other people, uh, Dan Willingham, that, that there are no sort of general purpose problem solving skills, no general purpose critical thinking skills. And what people have put to me, they've said, well, yeah, OK, well, we've accepted that. But what we're, we're not focusing on general purpose problem solving skills. We're focusing on mathematical problem skills. So therefore, they're domain specific. So we can teach mathematical problem skills and we can get around this problem of the evidence being against general problem solving skills. So is that a good defense? No, because um, problem... Problem solving is, um, look, let, let's use the example you gave earlier on of uh, uh, 3x equals 18, uh, yeah. x uh, equals 6. Well, when you're teaching somebody to solve that problem, you, 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 you teach them, okay, you, you, you've got to uh, divide out the, uh, um, uh, the 3 on both sides, and that gives you an answer. Now, that's a domain-specific skill. Yeah. It, it's pretty much, as far as I'm aware, useless everywhere except in algebra, but it's yeah. useful in any form of algebra. And do we have to teach that? Yeah, of course we have to teach it. So can you teach mathematics problem-solving skills? Yeah, that's... That's pretty much all that's taught in mathematics. <laughs> yeah. Mathematics problem-solving skills. And I've no objection to that. But when people talk about problem-solving skills, they're not really talking about solving specific problems. Uh, uh, the term isn't used so much now, but uh, 10 to 15, 20 years ago, 
people used to say in a derogatory tone, oh, no, they're just routine problems. Yeah. Yeah, we don't want to teach routine problems. We want to teach people to be creative. Yeah. And that's the objection. Now, if the curriculum, the new curriculum really is just talking about domain-specific mathematical problem-solving skills, I don't, well, I have no objection to that. Whether anybody can read that curriculum and get that interpretation, that's another issue because not the interpretation I got. No, and it's got things in like, it's just quite bizarre. Like there's mathematizing, right, is, is this thing. That, and I, I'm not sure, it's not entirely clear whether what that is, but it's sitting in there and it involves things like making choices and visualizing. And you think, well, but making choices, how do you teach, how do you teach someone to make choices? I get it's not like completely general. It's in the domain of mathematics, but a choice you're going to make in this type of math problem would be a very different choice than you're going to make it like you can only teach it in the specifics. Yeah, yeah. Look, they are clearly at that point saying we are going to teach people the general skill of making choices. Yeah. That's what they, they, they may claim they're not talking about that, but they are. And if they're not, to, if, 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 if they're talking about a general skill, and I can't see how else you can think about no. it. If they're talking about a general skill, the first question to ask them is pretty much the question we talked about earlier. What general choice skills do you use? Describe them. If yeah. you can't describe them, how in the world are we going to teach them? The, the, the curriculum doesn't describe them. No. And, and it's not described anywhere else. And do humans have to make choices? Yeah, we have to make choices. And it's a biologically primary uh, characteristic. Uh, and uh, that biologically primary characteristic is unteachable we make cho choices some people make good choices because they've got a lot of domain knowledge yeah other people make bad choices yeah it's it's almost a a strange thing to even talk about isn't it but it's sitting there i suppose the theory is that by getting kids to make choices in mathematical problems they will get better in some way at making choices in mathematical problems it's going right back to the start we're circling all the way back to the idea yeah. that problem solving makes you better at problem solving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 look, if somebody really believes that, and that idea has been around for uh, at least a hundred years and probably longer, run a randomised controlled experiment. Give one group of students uh, making choices, uh, uh, strategy, and whatever that might be. Yeah. Don't do that for another group of students. See if you can find any difference on totally novel problems in their ability to make choices. I can guarantee there will be no difference, and there is no difference. <laughs> uh, look, John, we're, we're out of time. I really appreciate uh, talking to you. As I said, um, it'd be good to chat again because there's so much that I didn't actually get to that I wanted to talk about. And I, I think that the people 
listening um, will will be really interested in, in in the discussion. So thank you. Thank you very much, and thanks for your great questions. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers.